You're listening to the Art of Move podcast, hosted by Dr. William Raybar and Anthony Manuel, where we attempt to create a grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, and training. If you enjoy these episodes, you can watch them streamed live on nofilter.net, where you can interact directly and have all your questions answered in real time. Five, four, three, two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Art of Moot podcast with myself, Anthony Manuel, my good friend, Dr. William Raybar. We're out here in the Canadian Rockies still trying to find the grand unified theory of human movement, biomechanics, functional training, how to live in your body, how to have a human experience in the best possible physical way possible. And today we're going to start uh, a little bit differently. We had a, a couple of interesting comments in the YouTube comment section of our last episode that I kind of wanted to read through and just kind of pivot the conversation from there because it's all kind of pertaining to this series that we've been doing on the philosophy of uh, movement science. So the first comment here is from Keelan Thomas. I've started this podcast and I will continue through as I'm quite excited for this topic, though I wanted to mention this thought that's been floating in my head for quite some time. It seems that there's an unnecessary dispute between science, quote, based practices and practical application, which has radiated more and more in the fitness slash training industry recently. This is something that we see and have seen in various industries also, researchers versus clinicians, engineers versus laborers, et cetera, et cetera. What honestly excites me is that it seems that now more than ever, perhaps thanks to social media, there seems to be a renaissance in human movement with relation to performance, health, strength, et cetera. There's more and more openness to experiment and test different modalities of training, which do not necessarily adhere to typical industry standards. As much as I love science and evidence-based tactics, I must also realize that unfortunately, quote, research can be catered to the industry's largest interest, which is the free market, which in this free market is economic gain. Not all research is pure and centered around genuine scientific curiosity, which is an issue that has been seen historically in various other industries like the tobacco industry, oil industry, etc. Data can be manipulated. I genuinely think that all the new training modalities and new systems that are arising based more on evolutionary tendencies and observational data can be studied and researched just as previous training methods have. A slight issue to me is that much of how the research is being assigned seems to be gatekept by the commercialization of the industry. Uh, and I'm going to stop there. That's that's most of the quote there. Anything that stood out to you in terms of the points that he brought up? I, I was kind of fascinated by some of the points he made. Well, that's a great comment. Uh, do you have it by any chance? Could you pull it up just so I can reference yeah, I'll, it? Yeah, I'll pull it up right now. Yeah, great. Give me one second. Um, yeah, just with what he was talking about, this is more on the philosophical end, about the renaissance of uh, information that's coming through. Back in the day when the print printing press came out, the Gutenberg printing press, that was the first time that mass information was able to make it to the peasants. This was back mm. in medieval Europe, right? This is what really started the Renaissance, as far as I know, right? So uh, I believe the internet and the ability to share around the world is that new Renaissance, that new printing press. At the time the printing press came out, there was people in the establishment, you know, the uh, aristocracy going, whoa, this is going to water down the info. This is um gonna make the peasant uprise this is you know there was a lot of issues that came along with it and i find that to be similar to what's going on now but there's way more uh variables to account for in the modern age right connectedness of the world the amount of info out uh how to parse it out how to censor it right um there's all those 
um, issues to go with. So it's very interesting right off the get-go that he mentioned Renaissance because I believe the internet needs to stay open in order for humanity to thrive. There's downsides and upsides to everything. Too much censorship is going to lead to a slippery slope. And uh, I believe that now a, you know, a farmer in Africa can trade his coffee beans by going on the internet mm. and finding someone to do that with. That was locked out before. No chance of doing that, right? And they're like, of course, that's going to continue going. But again, the slippery slope of censorship also becomes a slippery slope of control, right? And we have to pretend that we're not in a world where people want control if, if you don't want to argue that point. And we are in a world where people want control. We're in a world where there's always been power games, always been um, powerful institutions and structures that want to keep the present uh, infrastructure going, right? So it really is kind of like the people have to come together somehow and understand how to use this properly to use the power of the internet properly. And uh, yeah, I'm up for debate on how to do that and discussion, but uh, yeah, very good point right off the get-go. Anything yeah. uh, to add to that? Well, this, this idea of how much research can be gatekept by the commercialization of the industry, one of the ideas that you brought up that I'd never even thought of before was this idea that people will bias their research to get grants, right? And it's so it's not even necessarily um, always in terms of commercial interest of like different companies or different um, you know thought forms, but it's it's more like an academic like you 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 know continue to validate the that your research is useful enough to be paid. And unfortunately, the reality is that people need to you know work to live and work to eat and work to basically earn a living. And so it's not just gatekept by the commercialization of the industry. It's also influenced by the subconscious need of all human beings to make a good living for themselves. And so they will bias their research and they'll bias what they focus on uh, to cater to, I guess, what they think will make the, the most compelling case to get a grant, which is not always necessarily, again, in the spirit of uh, scientific curiosity. And that was the thing that kind of stood out the most to me. That was something that you brought up that I'd never, never thought about. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, getting a paradigm changing paper out there is not something that happens very easily, right? Like even if let's say scientists are like, wait, go to is correct. I'm going to bring this to my <laughs> university and really try to present this information. People would be like, mm, yeah, you're not going to get the grant for that. Or if you actually conduct the study, uh, it's probably not going to get in the best journal and you will have mm -hmm. to know how to conduct that study in the first place. So a person would have to be familiar with like, you know, if you studied functional patterns, you'd have to be very familiar with what they actually do. Right. Mm -hmm. So it would have to be very, very supervised because there's a narrative that like, uh, for instance, it's this, let's say 10 therapists couldn't feel this on a human being. Therefore all therapists can't feel this on a human being. Right? <laughs> there's a lot of that going on where it's like, you just studied 15 people who couldn't feel something and then extrapolate it onto everybody. And that's the kind of the collectivist mentality where it's like, yeah, these 12 people represent everybody. And it's almost like, you know, the individual cases, how it gets interesting because you're not accounted for, let's say the median age of a certain drug. Okay. Was studied from 30 to 40 years old on a healthy individual. And you're a 70 year old coming in to take that drug. It's like, you don't have that, uh, 
those variables from being 30 and 40 years old. You have your comorbidities, you have your, your own issues that don't fit into that category, right? So um, not everybody's going to fit the clean data that's usually obtained in the lab or in a trial setting, right? So mm -hmm. it really there really does have to be some mechanism to feed back from individual cases and make them more, uh, how do you say, like, they're not looked upon great in research. Mm. Oh, a case mm -hmm. study. Yeah. Forget about that. No, they should be brought up, especially on the field, in the field where people are actually working with human beings, like, you know, medical emergency rooms, uh, doctor's offices, chiropractors, wh whoever is in the system, right. Report back to the central authority again, whatever that is, if it's a, you know, a government or a, um, a board or something like that to have a database of people who don't actually fit the RCT. That would be a way mm -hmm. to kind of like help the RCT out. Although I think there's problems at the foundational level that we've discussed in previous episodes that supersede that, okay? That supersede the need for something better, okay? So um, can you pull that uh, clip back up? Yeah, that, of course. Uh, yeah, yeah, the comment. Yeah, yeah give me one comment. second here. And then, Did you have anything yeah. to add to that one? No, no. I mean, like everything that you said is is making perfect sense to me, man. I, I'm, I'm, you know, we're just kind of flowing along with it here. Um, what else uh, stood out from so, from this so, one? Was there anything else that you wanted to kind of pivot from from this particular comment, or do you want to move? For to sure, the next one? for sure. No, um, there's there's a lot here actually. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, where can you go up? Okay, so, yeah, so this is it seems unnecessary isn't unnecessary dispute between science-based practice and practical application. Who has the issue here? You know what I mean? Like the mm -hmm. practical appliers aren't really going after the scientists to do their work, right? It's kind of the opposite mm -hmm. where scientists are going, you're making claims. You need to justify these claims because we have to justify our claims as well. Right. So, right. um, sorry, you were going to say something to that. Well, no, because I, I do think that, uh, you know, the, the practical application people are still going after a little bit of, you know, what the what this, the evidence based or the, the science based pra practitioners might espouse because they're diametrically opposed to some of their first principles they are diametrically opposed to some of their training principles. And so they will go after them and they'll say, here's the reason why. And so, you know, there is there is a level of dispute, but I think the level of dispute is is both kind of arguing the same thing. It's pointing the finger and saying you have a limitation in your ability to observe things at the end of the day. Right. Because that's uh, a, uh, go ahead. Uh, I, that's a fair point, actually. Right. There is there is back and forth. But what I meant is the one is the the establishment, it is way bigger. It's a giant machine, okay, of, mm -hmm. of thoughts and ideas and collections. This is the science, right? And then you have a small micro niche kind of going up against that science. How did that small micro niche attract so much attention? You know what I mean? Like if, if there wasn't good info coming out of it, this is my opinion, if there wasn't great info coming out of that small micro niche, I'm talking alternative biomechanics, yeah, it yeah, could yeah. easily be ignored. That's actually what happens a lot of time is let's just ignore what people are saying, like if I say, or someone from a smaller niche, let's say Weck in the past is talking about coil spinal engine. Mm. He could easily be ignored. He could be ignored by the people who are, who were, uh, doing the studies about the balance disc, right? Mm -hmm. Hey, you guys, you didn't, uh, account for the fact that you're not even studying what you're supposed to and extrapolate it onto the BOSU ball, right? He could be largely ignored, although they did change the paper there. Basically, um, I believe if this 
uh, niche didn't have some gold in it, it would be completely yeah. ignored. Well, but it can't. It's, it's that, that, that sort of philosophical truth of you shall know them by their fruits, right? Like results matter. The fruits of an effort matter, um, not just the immediate or midterm or short-term results, but like long-term results matter as well. At the end of the day, there's, like you said, there's gold coming out of it. There is enough social proof. There is enough anecdotal experience. And, you know, <laughs> whether evidence-based philosophies don't, you know, like want to admit it or not, people care about anecdote a lot. They care about the experiences of other people a lot. And this is the whole, This maybe this brings it back to this whole human element that is fundamentally missing from a lot of this conversation is, you know, the, the reason it resonates with so many other people is because it's an actual experience of another human being. It's not a data point. It's not, uh, you know, quantifying your human experience and, you know, breaking it down to its, um, you know, least divisible part <laughs> at the end of the day. It's not measuring your life in variables. It's just, you know, it's, it's a human, a dynamic human experience that can connect with someone. Um, I don't want to get too abstract or too, you know, sentimental with this necessarily, but I, you know, that just came, came to mind a little bit. Yeah, that that's a great point. Another thing that he uh, said here is not all research is pure and centered around genuine scientific curiosity, which is an issue that has been historically in various other industries right so that that is true i think that's that's happening here right um mm. you have certain organizations like let's say cscs nsa nsca right they have uh i'm just going to give an example they have lecture circuits where they go and they they have presenters like Stu mcgill and other big presenters that go and they talk to big crowds and they uh they are the leaders of the industry right they're the ones that people look up to uh strength and conditioning coaches uh members of of those various organizations right so they're really the leaders and they're saying something different right they're saying something different than what this micro niche is saying right like a lot mm -hmm. spinal engine is a great example so it really takes uh a lot to change the narrative on that one right it's more than just adopting it it's like if you adopt it and now you're presenting right after Stu mcgill who's like brace the spine keep the core tight anti-rotation training and you're like no actually it's head over foot and you know imagine what going right after uh Stu mcgill that would be fantastic actually yeah. right i would love, <laughs> I would to, love see to see it would love to see a debate between Stu mcgill and david Weck. that would be incredible try to, let's try to organize that we'll reach yeah out to Stu mcgill and see if we can get him on the show and then uh, maybe he'd be open to having a debate yeah so my point really was that you have the organizations that sit on top you have their the players that sit up there kind of like ceos or um, mm -hmm. If you want to look at it in a religious context, they would be the priests, they're disseminating the information or the teachers, they're disseminating the information to their uh, classroom or clergy. And I use mm -hmm. it in a religious sense because it, it is kind of structured that way, right? And people do yeah. say that the first principle is the science. That's what everybody agrees on there. And now it's just picking out what the best science is. People get into camps believing that their science is the best science. And that's where mm -hmm. those guys are at where I'm well, kind it, of underneath. Sorry, go ahead. It, it, well, it, it, just to continue on that religion parallel, it's sort of like everyone could agree that the Bible is the word of God, but then you're going to spend, you know, hours in debate with one another and create your own sects of, of Christianity debating what that word of God means. Right. And, and that's sort of, you know, it's, it's picking out the best interpretations of these, um, assumed to be true, 
data points, I guess you could, if you want to call the, the Bible data points, right. And it's, it's one of these things where, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny. Cause like the, the science, like people act religious about science is, is like, yes and no. Cause, cause you know, I think science has like this level of discerning truth to a degree, but there's academic structures, I guess at the end of the day is what you're, is what you're kind of drawing a parallel to the actual literal, um, like hierarchical structures within religious institutions. Yeah, absolutely. So the institutions guide what, what you're learning. So in university, it's kind of well known that it's a little bit behind the info, right? So, mm -hmm. um, because it, it's not a malicious attempt most of the time, it's, it's that the science takes a long time to change. Consensus has to happen. So when you're in a university, you're kind of learning 10 years behind what the actual best research is. Um, some universities may keep up, but I think that's more of a standard than people want to admit. Okay. So right. uh, for instance, in university, I was learning the food pyramid, like the early one where they're like milk products and bread, you know, <laughs> have that before anything else. It's like, are you sure? Are you sure we can be doing that? <laughs> right. And then come to find out it's like both parties in Canada are funded by the uh, dairy associations, right? Like yeah. it, it, it really was political that beside that point. Even if it's not political, it takes a long time for universities to disseminate the right information. Mm -hmm. And and actually, I shouldn't say right information, to have a consensus on what to put in textbooks. Because certain textbooks dominate throughout the institutions, right? Like, there's no institutions that are learning something dramatically different than other mainstream institutions. They're learning mm -hmm. basically the same info, okay? So there's a standard when you come out. You can't have one lab doing one set of numbers the other lab doing it another way using different metrics and then combining the data would be impossible if you're pulling it together right so mm. um yeah and and an, another point here is data can be manipulated um i honestly wish uh to merge the gap that between what is being researched now and applied in a practical manner to bring light experimentation of movement training providing useful data to the research field for possible publication. Okay, so this reminds me of, uh, do you have that WEC? Or can you get on Instagram by any chance? Yeah. Do you have that WEC post where he shows the uh, data set from the uh, Lance Brooks lab, Lance Brooks locomotion? Um, take a look right now, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll pull that up, so, give me a sec. So basically it's a 3D camera motion that they captured in the SMU lab, okay? and uh, Weck is saying head over foot. You clearly see the 3D uh, movement of the model looking exactly like Weck is saying to run, right? So the data is there. there. There's thousands of these 3D camera sets of data that need reinterpretation, right? So this guy's saying data can be manipulated, but in reality, data can be interpreted in many different ways, right? So perhaps a reinterpretation of the data that's already there can help bridge the gap to academics not having to completely switch their theory, right? So the data sets are there. Take a look at, in reality, when you're observing it, it's head over foot. It's exactly like they're saying to run, right? But the side view assessment has the head pumping. You mm -hmm. see, yeah, right there. Well, it's like, you can, yeah, it's you like can that see side... <laughs> Boom, that coil, right? It's it's the coil, it's the head over foot, it's the being in your columns, go to says, right? So the data is there. You, you know what's kind of interesting too is like look at the segmentation of the person's torso. 
where it's like, you know, it's the hips and pelvis, a midsection, and then like a thoracic junction, basically. That's that's how they the gyroscopes. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. If you want to if you want to put it that way. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the segmentation, right? Um, for this three three dimensional model, it's kind of showing where where these things sort of break off and, and how they move dynamically with one another. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, it's super interesting. And yes. I love how he does, he does the side and the front view comparison. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, um, that really, that really just shows that there's data out there that needs reinterpretation. I had a debate where it was like, why would you say that three, like watching two dimensional video on YouTube? Okay. Mm -hmm. Watching injuries there would be superior to three dimensional cameras, right? Because only certain people have access to that data. And that data mm -hmm. can be interpreted in any way. As we see here, it was interpreted more from the side view, not from the front view. And if you watch the front view, it's clearly doing what David Weck says to do when you run. So perhaps a uh, amalgamation of theories there is possible. And, and the other point you made Brooks. last, you, you, yeah, <laughs> you mentioned the this last time there, right? too. The, the other, the other thing is that the data is, is context specific to uh, the laboratory, right? And so you're having this data maybe it's with the 3d camera and this person's running they're running on a treadmill the the forces are different from a treadmill than when you're running on still ground mm -hmm. um it's it's not accounting for the dynamic variables and the dynamic factors of real life outside of a laboratory and that's the ultimate you know that like for me when you said that it was like an aha moment it's like oh even with this great data with this isolated variable the variable is so isolated in the context of this laboratory experiment that it's not going to necessarily translate because there are so many other variables that could interfere with this in a real world setting. And I think that's, that's the sort of uh, limitation there, um, which is a good segue actually into the, the next question, uh, the next comment we got from a guy named Charlie Biggums uh, regarding AI technical advances will always be marketed in a language that we like to hear example, the promise of increasingly quote personalized data sets, but they ultimately follow their own logic in reducing experience to numbers in a pre-programmed way. The logic is depersonalizing regardless of the marketing angle. People also overstate their ability to use technologies and techniques as pure instruments while our entire post-industrial theory constantly shows that the tools we strongly condition the the way uh, that the tools we use strongly condition the way we think sometime in the last few decades hit a point where technical and statistical mindset slash tool set has become explicitly anti-humanist and needs to be meaningfully resisted or transformed. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, could you pull it so, up? I, I'm going to pull it up right now. Sweet. Yeah. Sweet. Anything that you're seeing on that right off the get go. So, you know, just, just for context for people who are, who are listening in here, um, when we were talking about the, the AI thing was something that I brought up because my brother sent me this video of an AI performing a, a joke in the style and voice of Jerry Seinfeld. And I was blown away because not only did they, you know, this program basically emulate perfectly Jerry Seinfeld's voice, vocal cadence, inflection, but he, he also emulated his personal style of joke writing, which for me is one of these things where it's like, how do you reduce style into data sets that artificial intelligence, like artificial intelligence is something very, very far beyond me. I love talking to my brother about it uh, because he has a way more nuanced understanding of, of how it works. And it actually gives me insights into how, um, you know, I think because it's aspects of it, but regardless, we were talking about AI 
as this thing where it's like, well, could AI get to a point where it could create novel and relevant, uh, you know, comparisons of, of data that would basically predict safer outcomes in a movement context. And that was sort of, you know, what we were talking about a little bit. The, the, the one thing that stood out to me that, that was like, a it felt like a, almost like a passing co uh, comment in the context of this whole thing, but needs a little more attention is people overstate their ability to use technologies and techniques as pure instruments. And, um, you know, while our entire post industrial history constantly shows that the tools we use strongly condition the way we think. One of my favorite books that I've ever read is a book um, called the shallows, how the internet is influencing our brain. And in that book, they'd kind of talk about the the utilization. You, you, we mentioned the the printing press earlier, and how reading affected the way that human beings thought. The earliest technology that impacted the way that people were kind of like thinking and interpreting and processing data was actually the the watch, the personal wristwatch, because all of a sudden you now uh, experienced linear time in this segmented way. And you were aware of this thing called my time and you started to schedule and plan and divvy up. And it was like the first entryway into a quantified existence was the wristwatch and was thinking about your own personal time. I found that really interesting. It's like, okay, so that technology influences the way we think, um, reading longer books, um, made it so that we were able to follow like long streams of thought. Uh, actually, one of the reasons that I really like doing podcasts as a format of content creation, I do a lot of content creation, but I always enjoy podcasts the most because it's able to follow this continual thread of consciousness. And I find the deeper that you're able to follow these threads, um, the more insights that you discover, the more nuance that you're able to sort of nitpick at, and the more understanding you and, and conclusions and like clear conclusions that you can, you can come to that you just can't do from the way that most people are using the internet today, which is in a scanning way. We get tidbits, we get like, you know, 15 to 60 second videos, even, uh, you know, in trying to create content for, to promote this show, we're doing, uh, you know, like one minute long reels on Instagram and shorts on YouTube now, um, specifically so that people can get that tidbit of information because that's the way our brains are now conditioned to take in and process things. Uh, man, this this is so brilliant. This, the more I look at it, the better it gets. Right. So, to your point there, um, people also overstate their ability to use technologies and techniques as pure instruments. Absolutely, right. We we see this everywhere. We're Science is not a moral judgment uh, area, okay? It's how do things work and how can we manipulate them, right? So the moral, the morality and ethics of how to use the scientific discoveries or the engineering discoveries, because I look at them as two different things. I know, weird, right? Um, <laughs> I, I look at that as two separate things, right? But I also see today's society not having an ethos, an underlying ethos, the Western anyway right? Where it's like, um, when Christianity was replaced, basically starting, you know, in the 1800s niche was like, we're unleashing a monster here because there's nothing underneath that to keep people. The morality is, is basically your human desires, right? And we're hanging on that. And there's literally no philosophy taught unless you seek it out. What were you taught philosophy in school? Not in school, not I mean, in, in a deep way. In a deep way, were you taught philosophy in school? 
so, so, but not as part of a school curriculum. So I had yes. teachers that were, were able to communicate elements of philosophy and ethics and different things, but mm -hmm. it was, it was the teacher, not the curriculum. Right. And I think that's, you know, and again, this is, this is where the human element comes in. Um, you know, from a, from a teaching perspective, was it okay that they went out of their way to te teach deeper philosophical concepts outside of the curriculum and the syllabus of what they were approved to teach necessarily, or was part of the, you know, the curriculum? Is that going above and beyond? Is that overstepping? Um, this is, this is an interesting thing too, right? Because there, there could be dangerous ideas that a teacher teaches outside of a curriculum that could have political or personal or social consequences to the student that learns it. Right. So this is, this is an interesting conversation in itself. It is. It's like, how, how far can you go with a thought experiment, right? Like in your own mind, how far can you go with the thought experiment? What is the way to regulate that? Okay. Like, um, if you don't say something out loud and you're thinking it, how do you regulate it? Well, they want to do that with biometric tracking. Right. So, um, that's an interesting tidbit in the future. For instance, okay. You wear biometric data trackers. Um, right now it could be your wristwatch, you know, whatever, but in the future, it's going to be much easier. It could be implanted. It could be a, a field of energy around you. Like, um, uh, you know, calculating your field of energy either way right now it can be done with wearables. Right. Mm -hmm. So you're a factory worker in China and you're slowing down and you're thinking too much about one or another thing. And a per part of your brain lights up. It's like, Oh, your social credit goes down. Dude, okay. I'm actually, talking, this is I'm talking dystopian right but, now. But, like, but, like, but, like happening, but. this isn't what's actually happening in China right now. This is really interesting. They have a facial recognition technology that they're implementing in schools to see when a child is paying attention or not. And it, like the teacher will get maybe a little notification saying, Hey, this kid's not paying attention or maybe the kid will get a notification, but it's literally using AI tracking to manipulate the the sort of state that the, the students are in while they're in a classroom setting. This well, isn't this isn't like a future dystopia. This is like actually happening. Okay. Let's discuss that. How many, wh what do you think the percentage of, you know, Canadians, Americans would say that that's a good thing. Okay. That you should, you know, the kids should be paying attention. They shouldn't be on their cell phones. If you just do operate conditioning, like condition them a little bit, they'll just get used to it. They won't even look at their phones anymore. They'll just be conditioned mm. to, to accept what the teacher says, which is the goal in the first place. This is to take in information, right? And, that, well, that is you know, do your homework and, and all that. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, we could, we could argue that that's a separate point, but my, my point being, it's like some people would say this is good. Then mm. the generation that comes up through school will say, yeah, that's how we did it. That was amazing. Before that, you know, there was chaos in the school. It was crazy. There was people just talking everywhere on their phones. Now people are paying attention. We're much smarter as a nation and, uh, we're, you know, ahead of the Americans who just yell in their classroom. Right. I'm just saying you could justify these things and it becomes a slippery slope. The technology's there, but what has to be guided is the morality of the public. And that right now is at the will of who knows what, I don't think people are thinking too much in the general sense of it. It's more just like, let's get through my life. And realistically, most people in public are not thinking about this sort of thing, right? So it takes the people on the outside to think about this and to really ask the questions and debate it philosophically, but the technology is coming in fast. So how do we actually have these conversations in an open format when big data, big tech, uh, wearable data, um, monitoring your health, 
all that is coming up in the next mm. 10 years. And again, like uh, my dad has uh, heart issues, so he could be wearing a watch that tells me his heart condition from thousands of miles away, right? Or at least mm. monitors his heartbeat, uh, ECG. That's not far away. The Apple Watch can do it already, not very accurately, but it can do it. So in a couple of years, that's going to be easy technology and I'm going to be all for it, right? But it can also be used as a different metric, right? Like described with the schools. So we really do have to think about the morality here and think about the ethics and think about what actually happens with this technology. Well, and it's interesting because the ethics, I feel like, exists a, a almost a, a question down right because like let's assume you say is it, it is it ethical or is it good to have ai tracking to make sure kids are paying attention if you say yes because they'll perform better in school i think the next question should be well what is the best thing to be teaching these kids in school right because that's i think that's ultimately the, the real the real question that's where the ethics comes in because if you're if you're basically forcing this information into into kids minds and you're forcing and you're basically programming a way of thinking into an entire nation right like if it's standardized you're doing it across an entire country so if you're doing that what is the best possible thing for what's the best possible way to think what's the best possible information to have what's the best what are the best possible skills and understanding to have like if you're using this technology well then what is the best application of it I think that's the the morality exists that question down. Well, uh, it's possible that the AI will tell us that because that, <laughs> that, that, seriously, that's that's kind of how it works now already. If you think about how how social media works, you're getting fed confirmation bias constantly. Okay, now when you're on regular media, it is you know you'll get uh, mostly in Canada it'll be like basic. Uh, news, right? The basic news that I, I look at, I'm like, okay, this is like a child story I, I'm seeing, right? Um, it, it's an easy narrative for people to swallow if they have half an hour a week that they just take it in news. Okay. When you're actually looking at things deeply, that doesn't satisfy you anymore. You have to go further, yeah. right? So in when you hit the social media sphere, which is almost where everybody goes, right? Like, and that's one of the issues that research-based people uh, appeal to is that what do we do in this situation, right? Um, you have people wanting to know more information because technology is, is kept up for every authoritative mainstream news article. There'll be 10 on TikTok saying the other thing, <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, it's a very interesting question of how much, uh, changing of the narrative or different narratives, a society can take in and still mm. function. Right. So that's, it's very interesting stuff for me. I'm for more debates. I'm for a more educated public outside of public education. Yes. Uh, our idols, like stop idolizing LeBron, stop idolizing, uh, Jordan other than their movement, mm. Nikola Tesla or their work, the work ethics. You know, like, yeah. yeah. I, I, it's interesting. Cause like, I find people who are idolized are usually any sort of person who is able to exhibit a certain amount of focus and dedication to get to, to under, well, first of all, mastering the basics and then also understanding the nuances and depth of their craft. Um, and typically the ones that are most rewarded are, are in the arts and athletics. So, you know, music stars and, um, athletes, super athletes, I, but that, 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 that can also, but generally speaking, like recognition follows anyone who's able to 
follow a thread of focus and get to a level that no one else is willing to do because their attention is too scattered amongst other things. Well, that's, that's the nice way to put it, I would say, but the, <laughs> the actual thing is it's social engineering, right? They're brought to you by, I didn't pick LeBron. I didn't pick Jordan. I didn't pick like mm. Tiger Woods to tell me what to do. I didn't pick the latest rapper. I didn't like rap for like four years until I'm like, oh, it's actually pretty good. You know? And then, you know, you start listening to gangster rap when you're a teenager. It's it like, it really is a slippery slope. Right. And like, I didn't choose any of those idols. So where are they coming from? Is it organic? Possibly. Is a lot of it inorganic and social engineering? I believe so, right? A lot of people can game algorithms now. Okay. So mm -hmm. like major corporations oh, can gain. Major. Yeah, absolutely. So that there it is right there. It doesn't have to be some nefarious guy in some evil castle, like Dr. Evil pressing a button going, who I'm going to socially engineer that. No, it's its own system no, happening. Well, it's, it's interesting though. The idea of social engineering is a function and a feature of marketing, right? And it's, it's something that like, because we live in a capitalist paradigm, we're always seeking to market towards our own personal capital gain, you know, directly or indirectly. I, I think that's like, you know, that's a broad generalization. I'm sure you could pick that apart in, in some, some aspect, but I think, you know, when I'm, when I'm studying how to market better, for example, I'm literally testing iterations of messaging that will land emotionally with people. I'm trying to find literal emotional triggers that will, it's, it's in, in a way like all marketing is, a, is some level of emotional manipulation. It's some level of predicting a psychological response out of someone. And that gets really tricky when you're trying to have interpersonal relationships with people and you're trying to be, you know, authentic and genuine, and you're trying to be caring and compassionate and you're not, you know, like relationships in general, friendships and, and intimate relationships shouldn't necessarily be fully transactional. There should be some sort of ascendant feature, I think, of interpersonal relationships other than this transactional energy and trying to manipulate the other person into good enough feelings to have your own needs met. Um, I really think that, you know, this is something that we all have to be aware of is everyone's trying to market something to us. And there is like on every level, um, you know, there's, there's a sales guy, Grant Cardone, who says that no matter what you're doing, everything is selling. And it's funny because it's like, that's the most capitalist society mindset in the world, but in the way that we operate and the way that our society is run, yeah, you're trying to, you're trying to sell, we're trying to sell people our perceptions, our logic, our ideas, um, you know, it's social media influencers trying to sell their image for your attention, whatever it happens to be. There's, there's like, there's some sort of transactional energy to a lot of this. Uh, I love Grant Cardone, 10X. Yeah, <laughs> man, 10X Your Life. Yeah. He has it's, a new book, it, The 10X yeah, Mentor. That's, that's great. No, I, I, I like what he's saying, and I, I can see what you're saying. He's a little bit on the extreme end with uh, the go get money at any cost. He, <laughs> he basically says it's your duty to do it, you know, like to mm. feed your family. He, like, he brings that narrative, and a lot of people need that uplift to, to get them yeah. to go out and do something, right? So uh, I think what he's doing is great, but... Um, it's more subtle than that too, right? Like there's advertising just isn't the obvious advertising of like a commercial or anything. It's, it's implanted into different places. I'm going to make the, and that's not a conspiracy. Okay. This is well known public relations and advertising literally is about this. It's not like, it, let's say Paris fashion or something like that influences or swimsuits influence what happens in the trends in the next year. And you don't know that when, when like my girlfriend's buying a 
a swimsuit. She doesn't know that. She's just like, oh, this is in trend and it's beautiful. I'm going to buy that, mm -hmm. right? So it, it goes to that level where it's kind of implanted in you through different industries to want a certain product. Okay. And, and again, it's not like a nefarious thing. It's well known within advertising. Now back to another point. Do you agree with this? If I wanted to really know, really know the ins and outs of a subject, I would go into the comment section and read that first. Do a lot of people read the comment section first, right? Like it's so funny. So I that I mean, this is why I wanted to do this episode is to to talk about the comments because I think that's where some of the best conversation comes from. But I caught my. It's funny you said that because like a couple like maybe like a month ago, I was like, oh my god, every time I open YouTube, I start playing it, but I immediately go to the comments to vet it from other people's perceptions and see what their arguments are and see if I can create extra frames and extra, extra, you know, context to watch this from. That's so interesting. So I, I think yes, because it's more than one perception happening and it's a, it's a collective conversation. I think you're getting more out of a collective conversation than just one person's viewpoint. Does that make sense? So yes, but specifically for that reason. It, it that makes complete sense. But what I was getting at more is really understanding the nuances of a situation. So if I was, let's say I'm uh, creating a new bow staff. Okay. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm watching a bow staff tutorial video on YouTube. It's somebody else's. I'm going to go or let's say Amazon, I go to the comments section, I read, Oh, you know, this is off the balance is off. Oh, I like this color. Do you have this color available? Um, mm -hmm. Oh, uh, I feel embarrassed when I bow staff. Is there a way to do this without being embarrassed? You know, like mm. all those questions in there are what marketers dream of and advertisers 100%, 100%. dream of because that's this the info like, they get to hit the next. Okay. You know where I'm going. So, with so this, I, right? so, so I, I coach people like my job, my full-time job, I've, I don't podcast for a living. My full-time yeah. job is, 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 is in marketing and I help people identify those questions. I help people find them. It's like you said, it's the comment sections. It's the Amazon reviews. One of my favorite tricks is you actually, if you have a Kindle, you go, you buy as many books as you can on the industry that you want to influence. And then you look at the highlighted, uh, like the, the most popular highlights, you know, Kindle has this thing where you can look at the most popular highlights, the things that people are highlighting in, in the Kindle books are usually the things that feel the most profound to them or feel like, you know, like they're on the edge of some, some, some new breakthrough. And it's maybe, you know, going to give you insight to the information that they want more so that you can create a product that specifically caters to the, the conversation that's already happening in their mind. That's the whole point of, you know, market research is there's already a conversation happening in people's heads. And if you, come along and you speak up and you say, Hey, I know you've been thinking about this. Here's the problem that you're aware of. Here's my solution. I know you've been looking for it. Here it is. That's what good marketing is. It's very interesting because that would be almost like the artist end of it, right? Where you, you, the marketer, the artist are, are going in and you're like, Oh, I can create that product from the, the comments here where there's AI systems. That's what the AI systems are. They're collecting data and they're collecting them from multiple spots putting it in algorithms and trying to predict your behavior. That's why you're seeing the advertisements on the side of your screen. They already know from multiple places, not just your computer searches, where your interests lay. You're getting more of that info that's feeding into more big data. And then that's kind mm. of how it works, right? So, 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 so big data is really interesting. It's a huge industry. I was, uh, I was studying a bit of data science before I got 
really heavy into marketing because I found it fascinating. And I, I read this really good book that is, you know, it, it's very accessible for anyone who who doesn't even, you know, have like much of the technical understanding behind AI and, and big data. But there's this book called Big Data in Practice, and they talk about how Netflix, for example, the the way that their algorithm works, they they put out this huge prize for, uh, you know, like this multi million dollar prize for whoever could come up with the best programming script to predict you know, the, what a viewer would want to watch. And basically what they, what the programmer that one did was that they created like millions of micro genres of movies or, or, or traits or features. So it could be like, uh, you know, quirky rom-com where middle-aged man falls in love with a girl who's out of his league in, you know, in New York, <laughs> you know, and like all of those variables would be accounted for and the characteristics of these, you know, these micro genres would be associated and balanced against each other. And that's why Netflix is so good at just showing you exactly the type of thing that the, the, the viewers, the mainstream viewers want is because it has this very complex set of data that it's collecting as you're watching. It's, you know, it pays attention to when you pause it, it pays attention to what you skip, it pays attention to like the things that you like and you don't like. It's, it's very, very specific, and very nuanced. And that's, you know, that's valuable to a company, especially a company that's based on consumption. If you can predict consumption, then I mean, you're printing money at that point. It's very interesting. And like, uh, what I was talking about with idols earlier, celebrities, let's take uh, major celebrities, they have, they're going about and going about their day, right? They have PR agents, they have uh, publicists, they have all that. And they're creating their image. And billionaires do this too. They create their own images through data collection, they know what you want to know about them, right? So mm. we're idolizing these people who are created by these AI programs on what to say, what to do, um, big data is coming in and it's such a weird thing. It's like, let's get away from these new age uh, idols and go back to idolizing people who actually did things for the world, okay? Yeah, like, that's, yeah. That's, my, that's my assertion there, it's my rant. Um, and I'm sure you agree with that, but, uh, that's one of the things that with looking at hundred meter runners, it's like, it's, I, I love the movement, right? But mm. I don't want to hear what Usain Bolt thinks about the president of whatever, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, exactly. I really don't. Yes. I, I don't want to hear what LeBron James thinks about uh, a topic he doesn't know about. You know what I mean? I don't want to hear any of that stuff. It's like, um, and why is this person always like Drake is constantly popping up on my phone. I'm like, just get away. Like, stop. You know? like, <laughs> um, I'm clicking Nikola Tesla videos and I'm getting Drake pop-ups. It's like, they're, that's so funny. They're trying to appeal to the lowest common denominator, right? Like it's, yeah. it's not very conducive to a society that can choose its own path. So the, you know, in terms of people who want to centralize things, it's an mm. argument for centralization. It's like, People are way too scattered anyway. You know what I mean? They're not even making their own decisions. So we should make better decisions for them. Okay. So that's an argument there. That's an I argument. Think, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like most arguments for centralization is that there, there's an inherent lack of faith that humans are going to do the best things for themselves. Ultimately, that's, you know, what, when I, whenever I've heard the arguments for like, well, we have to control this for safety. We have to, you know, centralize things. But it's, it's always, there's an inherent lack of trust that human beings are going to act in their best interest. And I, I don't think it's an unreasonable <laughs> assumption because if you think about how human beings act, like 
We are irrational creatures. Even though we have the capacity for rationality and logic, we don't exercise it all the time. I think that there is... I think that if we were taught to to self-advocate better, and, and again, this is like maybe maybe we're just taught the wrong things. Maybe the you know like this this is a, a deeper thing that I want to get into right now. But I, I I do think that that's the core of the argument behind centralization is that like human beings will not make the best decisions for themselves. So many heads are better than one. You centralize, you create this like group of power that is like the ultimate authority, and everyone else just follows suit because you're creating this framework for people that would be better than if they were left to their own devices. Yeah, we'll create better systems, right? And uh, mm. the system is really carrying the the weight of everything, right? Not the individual. Um, yeah. I, I believe in the individual, uh, educated, well, uh, and, and I'm not talking about mainstream education. I'm talking about what I was talking about before, having a restructuring of having the idols that make you want to have a better ethic, a better mm. ethos, and underneath mm you have a, a duty to uh i'm gonna take young on this one young says first half of your life you're taking in you're you're kind of taking from society and you're building yourself up second half you're giving to society whether that be through your art uh, mechanic mm -hmm. it, it doesn't matter right like you're giving to society more than taking in your second half of life i think that's a great ethos right like it's yeah. a great way to uh, but now it's just scattered. It's like anything goes and it's just like TikTok, go do this, go do that. Yeah, that's okay. Um, it, it's very interesting. It, it's a topic on how to structure society. So I don't think we're in, we're kind of veering off here, but yeah, very interesting well, either way, right? Let's um let's get into this last question because I sure. know that I, I sent it to you before and you were like, nah, I don't really agree with much of what he's he's talking about. Um yeah. so this is an edited, somewhat edited comment to give a little more context and explanation um from a guy named John Galt. And this wasn't on our most recent episode. This was on our interview with Naudi Aguilar. Uh, so he says, Naudi needs to think about epistemology, which I added, which is the nature of knowledge itself, knowing something is true versus just thinking something is true, and what that means philosophically. That's what epistemology is. And uh, so he's saying that Naudi needs to think about epistemology if he wants to not sound like a total psycho, and if he wants to get a fully accurate understanding of reality. Yes, your subconscious can calculate things before your conscious mind can in many cases, but it is often wrong also. Like jumping when you see a bug, subconscious intuition absolutely cannot be a means for establishing truth in any, quote, objective sense. I've listened to this podcast uh, philosophy of science episodes as well, and they are wandering down the wrong path. You should not surrender, quote, science to the, quote, scientists as a metaphysical and epistemological process and paradigm. They are just corrupt nihilists who actually do not believe in truth because they are descendants of Hume, Kant, Hegel, and their subsequent variations. They also don't believe in consequences of lying, provided they don't get caught or don't have to answer to power. Truth will win because it is irrefutable that truth exists. There is no such thing as truth. Well, how do you know that there is no such thing as truth? is deep um okay let's let's take this part by part um there's a lot to this right um I, i'm gonna ask more questions on this one i think because sure there's a lot to it right like he's naming three uh philosophers it's, i mean there's hundreds of hours of work on each philosopher i can't break it down exactly. right exactly okay yeah. and now he needs to think about epistemology maybe he has maybe he hasn't i don't know like the nature of knowledge itself i i advocate for this as well like why do you believe mm -hmm. the thing things that you do, where are your first principles and how 
have the genius people in the past who thought about this their whole lives? How did they structure how to think about knowledge? I think he's mm -hmm. correct here, but that doesn't mean that Naudi hasn't thought of it in a coherent manner. Okay. So let me back that up a little bit where in modern philosophy, I find that when I'm listening to a lot of people, it's more like there's the Aristotelians here where, you know, they're talking about Aristotle deeply. And then you'll have, you know, the Kant, the debate about Kant here. And each of those philosophers has certain um, ideas that they talk about, right? But you don't actually have to know about any of these philosophers to have thought of those ideas, but you're not going to understand it when somebody goes, well, the Aristotelian uh, view on this is this, 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 right? You're going to get lost because of that academic language in there, right? Where um, I'm sure nobody has thought of things, but it may not be under the official philosophy banner, right? So mm -hmm. um, I don't know if he hasn't thought of epistemology at all. I, I don't know what nobody thinks. This is kind of hard for me to do, but sound like a total psycho. That's, I mean, you're a, a, a subjective opinion and then wants to get a fully accurate understanding of reality. Do you have a fully accurate understanding of reality? Yeah, I, how's, I don't how's, know about that. The, how, are, um, how are you measuring that? How do you measure a fully accurate understanding of reality? Yeah. Um, anything and, and what, on that one for you? Well, no, it's, it's, I think that that last point of like how, what, what is our, what is our definition of what qualifies a fully accurate understanding of reality? What are the prerequisites? Right. And I think this is, um, you know, when you're talking about objective truth, um, his, his argument kind of seemed like paints a picture of some, some pre presumptions, right? Like the, like, truth exists is is a first principle that he's operating on um and then so but because truth exists how do you how do you determine what that is i think that is kind of what's missing in this whole uh expose that he kind of left for us I, there's a lot I of assumption there's a lot of there's a lot of assumption and unanswered questions within this comment for me well his logic obviously is that now hasn't thought about epistemology so he couldn't even have right. a fully accurate understanding of reality because the best understanding of reality would be people who looked at epistemology a lot right because they have mm. the most thoughts about it not necessarily true right so um th this next one yes your subconscious can calculate things before your conscious mind can in many cases do you know what a subconscious and conscious mind actually is like do we actually know what the subconscious is? I, I hear people being like subconscious and conscious mind. It's it's here in the subconscious and it's there in the conscious. I look at that as an easy way to explain things, but I don't know that that's going on. I don't know that there's a dualist mind in there. Neither does science. Well, like, come on. And, yeah, I, I mean, there are two scientific ideas that I've heard of a dualist mind. One is the left brain, right brain that Steph talked about on the the, the Uber Boyo podcast that we did with him. Uh, and he made an excellent video, like an incredible video breaking down the left brain, right brain. And the left brain is sort of this uh, assumed to be rational, cognizant, here, present, interacting with the world brain while the right brain is the subconscious picking up the big picture and observing all of this stuff and you know using examples of of uh, a neurosurgeon i'm pretty sure who had a stroke and her left hemisphere shut off completely and she was just in this sort of like borderline religious experience of of subconscious you know picking everything up and she, you know her left brain would come in and out and she'd be able to sort of observe this phenomenon it's incredible you should you should listen to it you should watch it um the other one is this idea that we have this one inch thick layer our our um 
it's the outer cortex of our brain. And then I think it's the hypoth hypothalamus, I want to say, that batches uh, information and creates habit and has this like subconscious automatic program that's running, right? So those yeah. are the two ideas that like the, the outer layer of our brain is, is this like thin, um, you know, layer of consciousness that is pasted over this otherwise autonomous beast-like animal instinct driven subconscious that picks up information and processes it at its, you know, at its own behest. Um, yeah, like, I mean, we can use that as a model to go on. I don't know if I fully buy into that. And uh, mm. even what you said with the hypothalamus, the hypothalamus does this. It's like it lights up on an MRI when so something happens. Right. Yeah, can yeah. you show me the cells coming together and deciding to do that task and then that task being completed from the cells to the actual physical environment? You like, please show me so where the can, consciousness you, comes in on that. You, you can see, well, it's interesting because you can see neurons making connections and firing you know like the more you fire a certain thing like there's there are actual neural connections that they've observed like connecting to a degree so if you repeat the same pattern over and over you can actually strengthen a physical neurological circuit that is transferring energy in a, in, in a certain pattern right Where and they've been the able to map they've been able Where to map the energy like so, so well, you're yeah, the, the energy, right? So I'm not, I'm not talking about consciousness. I'm just talking about there's, there's a physical process that's happening. Like with repetition, there's, there is actual like physio, like physiological changes happening on a, on a neurological level. So I can put electrodes on my body and and show that uh, happens as well, right? Like, but it's not showing consciousness, which was my, my actual point is the consciousness. Where does it actually come into the equation? Um, that can't be found. Therefore, it's like subconscious versus conscious is a level above that. Right. So either way, we're getting into the weeds here, right? Like, um, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, saying, saying your subconscious mind, let's, let's just for argument's sake for his model to understand his yeah. model, we're talking about like an autonomous reactive again, maybe that, you know, like the prefrontal cortex and the, the outer cortex of our brain is where our consciousness comes from underneath it is this processing of information to you know, to help us survive. It sounds like he's coming from an evolutionary lens where the brain is designed to basically keep stay energy efficient and avoid danger. And there are automated processes that would have ensured our survival. And that's kind of what's driving us. Right. Um, like, and, and that's like jumping when you see a bug, right? Because that would have had some sort of evolutionary benefit to, to make us react and go into that fight or flight mode when we sense danger, subconscious intuition can absolutely wait, wait. Or, is jumping when you see a bug, uh, wrong though. Well, like no, what, if the, what if you're allergic to a bee and uh, there's yeah, a bee next to you and you want to get out of there? You know what I mean? Like, is it wrong? Is it? Um, yeah. Anyway, so. I think I think right or wrong is based on context, right? Like um, the example in the Yoga Sutras that's like I, I read um, I read the Yoga Sutras pretty regularly. It's the the sort of core Hindu text of of the yoga philosophy, and one of the common like the a very common comment is mistaking a coil of rope in the dusk for a snake and assuming that it's a danger when it isn't it's this um, you know it's a false perception of reality based on a subconscious instinct or or your brain processing or, or a layer of your mind processing what your uh you know what your environment is telling you here's the opposite end of that spectrum though 
Um, mm. I don't deny, like, of course there's like people with terrible instincts. If I play Nintendo all day, like, or whatever, uh, video games all day. And then I go out into a street scenario, I'm probably not going to know what's going on. Right. But if I'm an expert in a field and I have the feel for it, right. Like, yeah. um, there's a fingertip feel. There's a the word for, I can't remember what it is like a German a word fingertip feel. Okay. If you're an expert in something, you can almost predict the future. You, you can look at an event and you see what happens before someone from the outside of that industry or an, uh, not somebody who's an actual expert, not the expert in like, you're an expert or somebody who actually deeply cares, who's going into a situation, let's say a mechanic who works in an F1 race car. He, he'll look at that and be like, I know when it needs to pit. I know what's going to go next. Uh, you know, like there's a prediction factor that goes higher when you're truly an expert at something truly have put in those hours truly have seen every scenario where like i don't see how that could be accounted for and that's the, almost the opposite of the jumping bug scenario but either way i don't see that happening in the brain okay like i don't mm. uh, like you could light up a center and that mechanic who's working on the f1 race car will have a center of his brain lit up but still can't find the difference between conscious and subconscious there but either way that's the opposite end of the spectrum of what he put here mm. So I've listened to this podcast philosophy of science episodes, which are this current series, and they're wandering down the wrong path. Well, we're, run, we're wandering down the wrong path right now. Turn off your station. <laughs> That's a Mike Tyson. Um, I, I just, <laughs> just want to like, you know, what's the right path, right? Um, I think yeah. that's the question is like, if, well, how are we wandering down the wrong path? What is it that you actually uh, disagree with? What's the actual disagreement that you have with uh, with some of the points that, you, that we've made? What are the specific things? Um, you should not surrender science, science to the scientists as a metaphysical and epistemological process and paradigm. That was our point, right? Is like, that what he's you, saying that we're doing? Or uh, is that his reasoning for why we're wandering no, down the wrong path? He's say, I, I think, but this is this is where I'm confused. Is he saying that we are suggesting we should surrender science to the scientists because that's the opposite of the yeah. argument we're making? Um, that's that's my question. Is like literal opposite of the argument. Yeah, but literally the opposite. Now, he's making some claims here that I think are too broad, generalized, and sweeping, um, and and not substantiated necessarily. They are just corrupt nihilists who actually do not believe in truth, capital T truth, because they are descendants of Hume, Kant, Hegel, and their subsequent variations. Um, you know, being who, who are the corrupt nihilists? The scientists, the scientists, right? Science to the scientists, they are corrupt nihilists. Scientists, I think, is who he's referring to here. Um, you know, whether or not mainstream academics and mainstream society in, in terms of academia are descendants of Hume, Kant, Hegel, and their subsequent variations, what element of Hume, Kant, Hegel, and, and their subsequent variations philosophy are you criticizing here? Because you're just bringing up names without any actual philosophical basis for what you're argue, arguing against. You know, you, like the nihilists, like what is that? Is that what you're saying? You're, that they don't believe in the consequences of lying, providing they don't get caught or don't have the answer to power. Um, what's the context? Wh who are you referring to? What, what like give, give give some give some information here I, I like i get it's tempting to make these broad generalized sweeping statements uh, about this like almost uh, avatar of a of a like of a certain caricature i don't know like what do you think man i'm i'm, I'm rambling at this point yeah i know i, I that so I, I see what he's getting at here they are corrupt nihilists first of all the word nihilist 
is actually there's there's different types of nihilists. And I would say under a strict definition, we are nihilists. Nihilists being like uh, not listening to the established structure of a certain uh, structure, right? So that's a type of nihilism, right? And I would say that a lot of the people cr who criticize science are technically nihilists, but I think the word now is used as somebody who is it's like, oh, the world's going to end anyway. You know, the sun's going to disappear in 10 million years anyway. May as well do whatever. And uh, don't, don't have that zest for life because there's no ethos right. underneath, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that's what he's putting. And they are just corrupt nihilists. I think most guys are just like a guy named Brad, Will, Anthony, who grows up in the suburbs, goes to university, and just is like – Timmy, what do you want to do? I want to be a scientist. And then they go into science and then they go through the process. And that's that. It's literally how it works. Like most university aged people are just like us. They go through the process. They happen to believe in the system and they just keep it going. And, uh, and like most of the people in science believe that what they're being taught is the completely correct information. Again, I've never seen anybody in university uh, dispute an actual theory. Okay, because it's just accepted. You're getting info tossed at you. You're like, okay, that's that's what it is, right? You don't have time to uh, argue gravity. Okay, like mm -hmm. it's just it, you're gonna sit there argue gravity with your physics professor. You're gonna get laughed at and eventually tossed out of the class because nobody's arguing against that, right? Like there's first principles <laughs> that you don't argue in school, so it's just like it it goes on and you learn the info. Maybe if you become an expert, you can go against a uh, established theory, right? So. That to me is is just not how it works, you know. No, I I I hundred percent agree. I want to quickly just cover this last point too, because again, I think there's a disconnect between what we believe or have been stating and what he's interpreting our ideas as. Truth will win because it is irrefutable that truth exists. There's no such thing as truth. How do you know that there's no such thing as truth? Uh, I'll just ask you flat out: Do you believe in a capital T truth? Is there a truth? Like an objective um, grounding centralized reality. Yes, you. Um, ooh, on most things, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people or things like, um, no. Okay, but yes, I think there's laws of nature that are capital T truth. Okay, they may be outside our perception, but I think there is laws of nature that are capital T truth. There's not that many of them, but they do exist. Um, I guess you can call them laws of physics, but I don't see them as laws of physics in the way that modern physicists have come out with theories because I see modern physicists as, um, and again, this is generalizing, they're uh, drawing upon complicated models on top of complicated model on top of complicated models. No one's going back and looking at the original. There's a lot of assumptions going on. And even between like, let's say metaphysical fields, you have string theory, you have quantum theory, you have, you know, uh, Way, many different theories within the realms, right? So uh, you can't say that there's a capital T truth even there, right? So mm. in physics, no, there's not, but there's laws of nature that are truth, I think. That's my opinion. I Yeah, I so, so I agree. I think that um, you can reduce reality to truth, <laughs> ultimately. I think there is a grounding central organic, you know, like objective truth i don't think you know when people talk about things like you have to speak your truth you know like yes i realize that you know due to the subjective nature of human experience that every 
interpretation of truth is literally just that as a personal interpretation. But I think it's, that's a dangerous, again, slippery slope, dangerous concept to ride, to run with, because you get to this point where it's like, oh, well, you know, because all interpretation of truth is subjective, then there is no truth. It's like, well, don't, don't take it that fucking far, man. Like there, 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 it's, you know, the, the whole metaphor, it, there's a spectrum and it's the, it's the metaphor of the elephant. You know, people are blindfolded in a room and they're all touching the elephant. One guy's touching the trunk. One guy's touching the ears. One guy's tr- touching a leg. You know, one guy thinks it's a hose. One guy thinks it's a tree trunk. One guy thinks it's a, uh, you know, a big leaf. And, uh, and, and they're all, you know, like they don't know the actual nature of the elephant because they can't just take their blindfolds off and look at the big picture. You know, it's it's one of those situations, right? Because we all are approaching things from our own perspective, our own limitations of of perception fundamentally. And I, but I still think there is that elephant. I still think there is a truth that we are approaching, that we are, you know, feeling out, that we're trying to understand the nature of. And I think there, you know, otherwise, why, why the hell are we having these conversations? If there isn't a truth and we're not moving closer to it, then like that would be the not like I wouldn't do this podcast because then I would actually be a nihilist. I would actually I, be like, well, okay, there is no truth. I think the application, the good application here is that better questions have to be asked in order to ascertain yeah. a higher truth, right? So, uh, like I said before, I think that there is laws of nature that are capital T truth and everything else is a spectrum and the right mm-hmm. questions have to be asked to get to that, uh, capital T truth. Can you pull that back up? I got one more yep, small sure. point. One sec. Yeah, of course. And then after, uh, just to wrap up, we had a question actually from, uh, from Naudi as well. And I'd like to just kind of, okay. read that out and yeah, absolutely. That I was actually going to say something about this here. So he's like, uh, um, let me see. Okay. Uh, subconscious intuition absolutely cannot be a means for establishing any objective truth, I guess he'd say in any sense, right? So truth in any objective sense. So I believe he's talking about when Naudi was saying when he looks at a client or goes into one of his seminars that he's doing it off of intuition. That goes back to the point of being an expert. Naudi doesn't go into a room full of, uh, I don't know, physicists or engineers and goes, this is how you engineer a building, right? He's going into a field. (laughs) He's in the trenches and has done so for decades right and mm. try to work with people so he he does have that specialized knowledge that comes from working in the trenches with people with human beings and having that energy that in itself is a certain energy that's not accounted for anywhere it's like it's not going to be accounted for in the scientific process but again the expert will look at it and know exactly what to do where is that in the brain i don't know okay but for me here it's like a lot of things like most situations now he's in will not be a uh, objective situation and say that that's objectively true. Like mm. what nobody's doing is objectively true. However, it's not the same as. But you can find objective it, truths practically, right? Like you, like what he's doing in a training context, he has a person in front of him and he intuitively knows what to do. And then the, he creates a result. And so it's objectively true that his intuition, which is providing this novel solution that maybe he's never ever done before, but he just intuitively knew to do it. I've known multiple trainers and multiple biomet guys who are like, I can't tell you the amount of times that I've just intuitively, you know, someone comes in with a problem and I intuitively knew what to do with them and it was the exact thing you know the exact thing that they needed even if i'd never done it before happens to me all the time when i'm working with a patient because i have put the time in but uh, there was a time when that didn't happen um either way here there's a difference between objective truth in a sense like how scientists today look at it where 
it's mm. the amalgamation of the consensus of the peer review research, right? Peer review research. That's the objective truth in that sense, right? So, um, of course, what Naudi does in an HBS2 course uh, intuitively is not objective truth to the sense of a scientist who looks at the amalgamation of research, right? So yeah. they're not the same thing. It's an individual I, doing I, something as an expert. I, it, and it, yeah, it's funny because I think if a person's spending all their time reading research, they could intuitively draw connections to the research that they've read and they could come up with novel ideas. And this is just a person being in a flow state, right? Like a person could, uh, you know, read a ton of information and then they let their mind wander. Maybe they go for a long walk. I always, you know, like I think of uh, playing music, right? Where you can practice scales and you can listen to music. And I always have this experience when I'm performing a show and I'm playing guitar. Uh, I will do things that I would never think to do or I never would have done in practice because I'm able to let go to the degree enough that my subconscious mind is putting together all this information and is just, you know, it's, it's driving the truck because it can process that information faster. And it's, it's funny when I'm playing these notes, they are objectively harmonious in terms of the laws of music theory, right? And, and they, they fit and they work, but it's not something that my conscious mind is going and doing and discerning as like, you know, something that would make logical or coherent sense musically. In the same way, when you develop a professional capacity for something, you know, if you're, if you have a gut feeling or an intuition about something, it's about all the data that you collected prior. So the, I think the, again, the context subconscious intuition in a field that you are completely unfamiliar with where you haven't had experience or, you know, mentally collected data or reference points to, uh, you know, to, to utilize, then you won't have a, a, a knack for establishing objective truth with, your subconscious intuition, but it doesn't mean that your subconscious intuition are just to be thrown away as irrelevant and incapable of coming to novel conclusions that happen to move you closer to objective truth. That's all I have to say about that. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one, right? This philosophy <laughs> stuff is deep. Um, what's this the is, note? This is why we're doing it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah let's uh, I'll, I'll stop sharing this here and I'll, I'll just open up. He sent me a message and, and he, he, he listened to our last episode and he said, um, you know, he, he's curious to what you're referring to when you say that no bullshit physio is doing well so far, like what exactly is he helping people discern to take a better approach with their practice? I'm yet to talk to a single physical therapist of so probably hundreds face to face who would deny the psychosocial model. If that's the argument the student's making, it's not in any way radical or new. If it relates to mechanics or interventions, I'd really like to see what Will is seeing, or if he's just giving him the benefit of the doubt on things tonight, not be hyperbolic. Uh, okay. So, um, do you have that? Can you pull it up? Yeah, I'll pull it up. Oh. Just give me one sec. I'm going yeah. to do it. So that there's a little bit of, uh, I'm going to copy paste it so that I can, uh, you know, not have my whole LinkedIn. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. There. Um, to the first point, um, what was he saying about, uh, oh, okay. So overall, uh, we have to get specific on what I believe and what I don't believe and how, um, I look at things and how no bullshit physio looks at things. Right. Where we agree is mostly in the office setting. I think there is a lot of BS out there that he's calling out that I also believe in as well, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, getting patients to come in three times a week for the next year. A lot of physios are doing that. A lot of chiropractors are doing that. It's like, is that really necessary? Like, um, I'm bringing people in like max four or five visits, you know, that's average is like three visits. And if I'm not getting you better, then there's something uh, off, or if I can't figure out what's wrong with you, 
it's never more than like five visits, right? Unless someone wants to come in and like, is like, I really like what you're doing. I'm going to come in. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's the only time I actually do it. And there's people with enough money that are, that's like, they'd rather spend that than a dinner or they just go into dinner and then get treatment. Right. So, um, in that context, he is very, um, very on point. And there's a lot of things that people just say, um, your SI joints out. It, really? Is it like, uh, Oh, your SI joints rotated three degrees this way. And then someone will come into me and be like, my SI joints out. My last chiropractor told me, or my last physio is like, I, I just got done and, and my hips are twisted. Right. That's my problem. So they're getting told they have problems, problems, problems. You have this problem. You go to the next guy, you have this problem, but you can also frame that in actually, these aren't really problems. You will get better. It's just a matter of time. That's a much better frame to come into, right? So he does advocate for that, which is what I advocate for as well. He would call it more of a movement optimism or, um, uh, nocebo is the word that they use, right? They're like, don't hit someone with a nocebo. And I think Naudi directly conflicts there because he calls things dysfunctions where mm -hmm. some things are dysfunctional. Not everything's just an, if you point something out negative, then it's a nocebo. Not everything fits in that category. There is actual something that could be mechanically a dysfunction. My personal opinion right. is I wouldn't use it personally that as much. I like to use the language or the vibe. I should say the vibe when I interact with someone that they will get better. Okay. That mm -hmm. you without directly saying you're going to hundred percent be better. I guarantee it. And not like that. It's like, you're putting frame it as a more like a optimistic progression towards exactly. wellness, as opposed to just saying it's like, here's your, like, you don't want people to identify with their problem and obsess about it and become neurotic about it. When you're in the biomedical paradigm, you have to have a diagnosis. I have to diagnose you with an issue. And then that issue, like when it starts to be more of a factory setting in like a city where I, I work with personally with people, so I don't need to refer as much, right? Like, um, most of my patients know me. And, and anyway, when you're in a city, you're in a quick scenario, you're 15 minutes with somebody. It's like, I'm going to try the, this, this, and this ultrasound, which doesn't work. Okay. Uh, I, in my opinion, right? Like, um, I'm going to hit you with some needles and, uh, you're going to do this band exercise over here while I'm with another patient and, uh, you'll be here for an hour, but I'll give you my time intermittently for 20 minutes. Right. Um, that patient is probably not going to get better quickly. Okay. You're not giving them the time and the effort and, and all that. So, um, everybody wants to make the models better, but it's going to really take, people caring about another human being to actually switch what they're doing, because now you can't just run from room, room anymore. Um, and that's a problem for people trying to make money, right? Like, um, you do have to make money. You're as a student, you're thrust in there and that's all, you know, you don't know any different. Right. So, um, I, I agree with them on, on all those points. So, um, yeah. In, in terms of, uh, are, like, I think one of the things he was asking and I could be wrong, but in terms of like actual mechanics or interventions, um, is he promoting anything that's good or useful or is producing results? Um, is there anything that you see that he's espousing like as a positive, as opposed to like, rather than just calling people out or saying, you know, like other than the mindset, is there any like mechanical or intervention based thing that he's espousing that you think is good? Yeah, that's where I, that's where I disagree with him, right? Like, um, he's basically progressive overload, um, whatever movement, if I want to pick up my child, I just pick up my child 
with less weight. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or just like, if I can't, if I can't bend, Milo the to, Milo the if I can't bend all the way to grab my child, I'm going to bend halfway. And, uh, some of these guys, I don't know if he advocates for this. They're like, pain is going into pain is okay. Right. Hmm. Um, I'd say like, that is a very, very individual situation that I can't comment on. And I mostly use that pain as a guide to where I'm going to go and where I don't go. That's where we would differ there. But either way, um, he like the way I look at it is a lot of people espouse for their camps. They're advocates for the camps that they're in within the research-based paradigm. So mm -hmm. he's in the, uh, you could see from the posts with, you know, functional memeology and, and, uh, it's very weightlifting based pro heavyweight. Um, I just want a sick pump. I just want to, you know, do that sort of thing and stop making me scared to do what I love to do. Okay. Um, you're hitting me with nocebo, stop it. Right. So to me, it's much more nuanced and there is like where we dif differ is I think there is natural patterns, right? Like, and Naudi might not even agree with me with that. I, I don't know because I'm not in functional patterns. Right. So I can't say, but either way, I would just subscribe to a research review service, um, that kind of amalgamates the research for you. If you're not somebody who's deep into the research and can pick a camp, which when you pick a camp, you're advocating for it anyway, you're not looking, you're not, uh, completely taking into account what the other camp is saying because they believe yeah. what you believe that they're correct right so that's that's my question like when you're saying you know one of the limitations that i could see with even subscribing to a research review service for example is that you're getting one person's uh interpretation of a broad range of literature and even if they're following the literature very very closely is like is that one interpretation adequate enough for you to get a big picture you know should you have two opposing sides, you know, who are arguing with each other about the research, you know, have the, have the two opposing sides do research reviews with you. Um, and then you can kind of, you know, compare, contrast, draw your own conclusions. I think, um, it's interesting because the more you, it's, it's hard because you can't take, there's a, a limited amount of information that you can take in, but at the same time, if you forego looking at the details yourself, there could be misinterpretations of data. There could be misinterpretations of, of information along the way that limits your ability to think. And so, you know, even the research review thing where it's a hack, where you can, you get this large body of data. Well, it's still one person's interpretation of that information. Well, it's many, there's, there's more than one person doing it. But the funny thing is, uh, there's a guy named Greg Lehman and he is, he's one of the top guys. Okay. So he's like, um, I, I'm going to go back and tell you how it works. When you're in school, you actually don't start looking at the research. Nobody does that. They pick their favorite guy on social media, which is again, what everybody else does. Right. Ironic. So you're going to have your, you're going to have your Stu McGill guys. You're going to have your Greg Lehman guys. You're going to have your Adam Meekins guys. People in physio school right now are going to look at no bullshit physio and be like, that guy's a genius. He knows all the research, right? So that's how you actually get your information when you're an undergrad. It's, it's like, okay, that's the camp. That guy represents the camp that of what it means. So I'm going to now advocate for that research. Okay. So in that sense, uh, a guy named Greg Lehman is one of those guys. Now I hear no bullshit physio reference Greg Lehman. I hear... Uh, Aaron Kubal referenced Greg Lehman. They all do. They love him. Okay. Anything he puts out is gold. I believe I heard Aaron Kubal go like when Greg Lehman puts something out, I listen or something like swooning mm -hmm. over him. Right. So basically this guy's, this guy's great. He's a P he's a no, uh chiropractor and physiotherapist. Okay. Mm -hmm. And he's a researcher. So he knows a lot. He's a smart guy, right? He knows the research, like the back of his hand. And, uh, my point, I, can you pull 
back up, I, I got to see for yeah. the point that I'm make. Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Is that, uh, uh I, I need to, to see where I'm at here. I'm a physiotherapist is there a better approach practice yet face to face. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to come back to that cause I lost my train of thought, but back to the biopsychosocial model here. Okay. Yeah. Nobody so, can, by the way, I don't think, I don't think that, uh, no bullshit physio is denying the biopsychosocial model. That's not no, something I, that he's ever claimed. No, I don't think he is either. He, I, I think they like the biopsychosocial model, but I don't think they use it mm. correctly. I think they use it more in a dualist approach where it's like, um, how do I put this? It's like, oh, what I'm doing is not working. So something in your life must be going wrong. I should send you to a psychotherapist or uh, something along those lines. So it's very dualist in that there's more to this person's story than just their physical ailment. True. Therefore, if I can't figure out their pain, and this is where that layer of I can use this as BS. Oh, you're not getting uh, proper recovery from my treatment well then there must be something wrong with your life are you getting good sleep are you eating well are you doing that you know it's that can be the biopsychosocial model to somebody who uses the biopsychosocial model right so um back to what i was saying before there's camps of uh different people greg layman adam meekins they're like you don't actually should even touch somebody. Okay. And, and they don't say that they say, Oh, your magic hands. And they make fun of therapists because there's an elitism within therapy, therefore throw out, uh, most therapies. Okay. And I, I actually kind of agree with this in a way where there is a lot of elitism and there is a lot of, um, my system does all the magic and the other system does no magic. So I can see the apprehension on that side of things where, uh, everybody's claiming that their system's the best. So go to functional patterns. You're just the next guy, right? You're just the next guy making claims, but they're throwing the baby out with the bathwater in that situation. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, basically that's all I had to say. Anything. Yeah. I, I mean, that? you know, in terms of, uh, I don't, I don't, I haven't heard specific, I, I don't know in terms of mechanics or interventions that he's talked about for the most part, I'm following him on a meme account where he just makes memes about things that he disagrees with or thinks or, or agrees with, um, you know, and so I don't think he's actually espousing some, some, any like particular specific interventions. I think he's, you know, contributing to a conversation in the way that you said, you know, trying to clean up the science, trying to call people out where he thinks there's bullshit, hence the no bullshit physio tagline. And I really genuinely think he's, he's, he's doing his best effort to do that. Um, you know, we're just hoping that maybe this conversation is going to open up a broader context and, and reveal not just to, not just to their side, but I'm, I'm even hoping, you know, for, for me, personally learning about some blind spots in, in thinking. And just the, the, the goal behind this is you and I both like to talk. We both like to think, um, we want to improve the quality of the thinking and the conversation ultimately. And we want to improve the quality of the questions we're asking. We want to improve the, uh, the journey towards truth. We're just trying to get closer to that. And I think that requires a collaborative effort amongst many perspectives get this philosophically. Okay. Even if you dislike somebody, you can still engage with them. Uh, how about that? Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's not even, <laughs> not even that crazy, right? Like I, I, uh, wouldn't say I would get along with somebody who espouses that type of information in that way. Right. But it's no. fine. It's just like, I love uh, rivals, with them. rivals don't like each other anyway. <laughs> you know what I mean? Most of the time, but there's a mutual respect there for you're engaging in the same type of uh, arena that I am. So let's, let's do this. Let's figure out where the, um, problems lay. Right. When, um, 
back to the original conversation, I was going to say Greg Lehman and FRC come to a head. FRC, like Andrea Spina says, be very specific with the tissues. A lot of these guys, you look at the research and say, you can't be specific with the tissue. So one of them is off there, right? And it's ironic because the research review service that I uh, espouse is Sean Thistle, who is good friends with Andrea Spina, who espouses the yes, be ultra specific with your tissue mm. load. And he justifies it through mechanical force. You, you're putting in a specific force to a tissue. Therefore, it'll have a specific change because force is the language of the cells where they go, well, uh, double-blind placebo-controlled studies said that 20 uh, physios couldn't tell the difference between this and this, uh, this tissue and this tissue. Therefore, all of it sucks, right? Like, um, now I may have straw man there a little bit, but that's kind of what it's like. They throw, in my opinion, the baby out with the bathwater and, and a lot of things. Posture, they go, they say things like posture is not correlated with pain. Yeah, posture the way you look at it, which is like upright guy in a still manner. Yeah, we all agree on that. Okay, so. Uh, we agree in a lot of the models that have previously been there are, there's a lot of BS in it. I'm just saying that there's more nuance that you can pick out. Let's say if I go to a conference on, uh, who knows, like a rock tape, right? I went to a rock tape, uh, seminar. Okay. And I got there and it's, it's basically doing Tom Myers anatomy lines with the rock tape, right? With the kinesis <laughs> tape, which is, I mean, yeah. I've seen Naudi do this, right? And um, to me, I'm like, I'm not going to spend, this is not going to work for me. I'm not going to spend this much time putting tape on people. That's probably where Naudi was at. And it's like, okay, I do see some before or afters that were beneficial, but I'm not going to use this. And there's probably no evidence for it where some of the gold that I got from it was learning to wrap vo voodoo floss, which I already knew how to do actually, cause I was in CrossFit, but I could see that that would be the applicable thing for most people who went to that seminar. So they went to the mm -hmm. seminar, they got an amazing hack that they can do that will make a difference to people's lives right away, especially if they're in like a CrossFit gym or something like that. Right. So, um, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. They're like, yeah, what that guy espouses sucks. Right. But everybody's got something. If you were in practice for 10 years, you probably have some gold somewhere. Right. So back to the other point where we're talking about, um, your own journey. Okay. So with my journey, I'm looking at, um, no bullshit physio. And I'm, and I'm seeing what he's espousing. I'm like, there's gotta be some logic to this guy. Cause it, we're coming from complete different worlds. Right. So I dive into his work and lo and behold, I've left that world for five years. Things are blowing up. There's some infighting going on over there. That is very, very, very interesting. And that's between different camps. Yeah. You think McGill guys and McKenzie guys are getting along. They're not. Okay. Which is like how to deal with the disc herniation compared to like a Greg Lehman guy who no bullshit physio follows. It was like, yeah, just, I mean, flexion's fine. We're fine with flexion. We're fine with extension. It's all good. Right. Or uh, like, are you sure? Graded Another guy exposure, you're going to adapt to it through graded exposure. And then Moving no matter up, what you're doing, it's exactly. going to be fine. Yeah, exactly. And a guy like Adam Meekins, which is another one of these guys, the sport physio on Instagram, he ironically had a disc herniation caught on tape. Okay. Mm. Um, yeah. And then where he's doing his own whole rehab. Exactly. But he was doing a flexion based, uh, deadlift, which would, he would espouse as this is fine. Right. Where I looked at it, I was like, Whoa. Okay. So yeah, like well, so there's so in his, in his mind, he's just, he's just not strong enough for it. Right. Like in his model, he's just, he's like, Oh, I didn't grade my, my, or 
or it's like, this just happens, right? That's the other one that I hear a lot is like, well, this, this, this just happens. You'd be driving your car and injure yourself. Now it's, it's interesting because I don't actually necessarily disagree with this idea of graded exposure, causing adaptations and making you more oh. resilient. It, it, it's true, right? You're, you're better equipped to handle that specific stimulus, you know, specific adaptations to impose demands. That is, that is a truth. We're not in disagreement. Now, the, the one thing is, yeah, but are there correct ways to move? Are there more efficient ways to move? I love Naudi's definition of efficient movement, which was to move with the minimal amount of waste, right? To to not have energy leaks, to transfer energy efficiently, to not cause jarring, uh, you know, forces to sort of traumatize tissues where you don't have to. Is there is there is there a more or less? Let's not even call it right or wrong. Are there more or less efficient ways to move based on our mechanics? Uh, well, I would say, of course, right? I, I think there's a natural pattern to move. That's my assertion, right? And I've discussed this on 30 plus episodes in the past. Yeah. So I'm not going to go over it now. But uh, things that we don't agree with, like, I mean, there's so many, right? Like, uh, I think, again, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. Their uh, premise, their first principle of only research-based a double blind starting there and then maybe going with anecdotal, even though that never happens. There's always a double blind to when you're in that camp, there's always a double blind you to adhere to, to, right? You have to, yeah. otherwise, why you can't you move outside the double blind because it doesn't, it's an oxymoron. There's no truth outside the uh, religion, I'm going to call it, right? Because it is mm. treated much like a religion, uh, structured much like a religion. You may not even know it if you're on the bottom rung. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, that's pretty much where we're at with that. And, uh, a lot of the stuff where he's, you know what, we can uh, discuss this another time because it opens up a whole can of worms on, on what totally. we disagree with. But, um, I do also want to go through Adam Meekin's deadlift journey and, uh, discuss that because we have yeah. a lifting background as well, right? Like yeah. I owned a CrossFit Maybe. for five plus years. I've lifted my whole life. I've looked into it deeply. We just never talk about it. Right. Yeah. So. I, I actually, it's funny. I tried a deadlift, like a, a one rep max deadlift after doing nothing but biomech stuff for, you know, I don't know, probably five months or more of just like pure, like no touching weights at all. I mean, I haven't deadlifted seriously at all period. Um, but I mean, I hit, I hit a 405 easy deadlift just, and it, it was interesting because it felt like my whole system was just integrated and able to, you know, bounce out of this weight. It was, it was really interesting, you know, cause like my body, I was marveling at how my body feels like it's a different body than it felt like a year ago. And I mean, I haven't even been doing biomech. Like I haven't been exploring these alternate uh, techniques and working with coaches and stuff for a full year yet. It's, it hasn't even been a full year, but in the last six wow. months, like the, the fascial integrations, the patterns that I feel the, like, it feels like I have a different body than I had. Um, you know, it's stable fluid. It's able to transfer energy. It bounces really well. It's bursting with energy. And a lot of it is efficient movement patterns and how I'm resting and, and, you know, all the stuff that we've talked about and that we've, you know, working with some of the people that we've had on the podcast too. Like, I feel like I have a different body and at the same time, it's like, I'm not weak. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, it's not like I'm prone to more injury than another person who's doing graded exposure and lifts, you know, like I'm still strong as shit. I'm still, you know, athletic. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a bad thing. So I think, um, any final points that you want to make before we wrap this one up or it's again, mind boggling, but we've already been talking for over an hour and a half. Um, no, that's, I mean, we can leave it there and, uh, let's continue. I, I'm loving this new area of philosophy and uh integrating yeah, like, it into the, the movie i feel like here. um 
I feel like this is kind of where we were eventually headed anyway. And it's what we talk about for the most part. It's, it's what's on our minds a lot. Right. And so uh, for the, for actually, those... I wanted to say one more thing. The, uh, uh, the ironic part is that, uh, the person who's espousing science made us get into philosophy more. You know what I mean? Like the yeah. scientist <laughs> made us move into philosophy because, uh, it, it was just where it's headed. Now the information is clashing and, uh, Let's see how we're actually thinking about this. I would love to have a discussion with science-based uh, PhDs, uh, biomechanists, all that, and we'll we'll flush out what's what. Yeah, I, I do want to say, you know, we one of the reasons we read out the comments today from our YouTube channel and why why I'm reading messages and using those as pivot points to the conversation is because you guys are part of the conversation too. Uh, anyone who's listening who has you know, serious points, you know, like send us a message, leave another comment. We'll either answer the comments. You can join us live on nofilter.net, which is where we do these. And you can actually debate with us. You can hit a knock button and we let you into the stream. And then we just have a conversation. We've had people do that before. It's super fun. Um, and we want more conversation. We want you guys to be engaged. We want you to be part of the discussion because it, otherwise it's just Will and I going back and forth or whatever other guests that we have on. We try to have a lot of guests on with a lot of different perspectives so that we can expand our minds and we're going to have a lot more guests coming on later in the month. But that, that all said, um, engage with us. You know, you can follow me on Instagram at the body moves. You can follow Will at the art of move. Our DMS are always open. We always have discussions with people. We'll send you voice notes. If you have questions, we try to answer them. Um, if you're on YouTube, you can leave a comment. You can leave a comment on one of our posts. Uh, you can send us messages, you know, however you want to send us messages, however you want to get us your opinions to us. We'll, uh, we'll take them into consideration in terms of the broad conversation. And if we feel like there's something that really, uh, you know, contributes to the conversation or something that is a, an interesting debate point against our ideas, we'll always cover it. So thanks for listening, guys. This was another episode of the Art of Move podcast. We'll catch you on the next one. Have a good one, guys.